0: It's a it's like it's home.
1: So welcome to episode seven of Simulcast and I'm joined again by Jesse and we're going to be focusing today on some of the practicalities of moulage and the actual physical realism that we try and create in simulation. Hello Jesse, how are you?
2: Hi Vic, good. I'm really excited about this episode. It is not my forte at all.
1: Uh, It's been a long time between drinks for uh, you being on the podcast and I was on my own with Damien just recently but it's nice to have you back.
2: Yeah, thanks. I've been sinking my teeth into a new job. Just recently started in the emergency department um, as a nurse educator, so it's brilliant being back in an education-focused role.
1: So as I said at the beginning, this episode is really to look at those practical issues related to how we make our simulations realistic. And so I went and interviewed a few individual guests, and so this is something of a mixtape where we've interviewed a range of people with different expertise and different experience that we thought our listeners could benefit from. The first of those was Claire Scott who I work with here at the Gold Coast and she's worked in industry with some of the mannequin manufacturers and a range of other people so she has more than 10 years experience in doing moulage and her tips and tricks I think were really straightforward straight to the point and practical and useful. So here's her now.
3: First up is keep it simple. So gauge the level of moulage required for your scenario and don't overdo it. Um, We're all time poor and so there is absolutely no point in creating a wound if your participants are not taking the wound dressing off um, versus you may have a scenario that requires a more advanced level of moulage because you want to give those visual cues.
1: Mm-hmm. So
3: keep it simple, um, keep it real. So don't overdo the moulage. So uh, I've seen in the past bruises that have got far too much makeup on and they're almost humorous and they also derail the participants they are more focused on, on the wound or the patient's condition than actually what the scenario is meant to be delivering so try and keep it realistic and authentic
1: to what your simulation event is about mm-hmm. okay so these like sounds like some good tips so you're saying keep it simple keep it real don't overspecify it yeah and if anything do do your research
3: So look at what other people are doing out there, go on to YouTube, watch what others are doing, read what others are doing, and it it can save you time and it can give you some great ideas, and that's what I refer to a lot, when I'm given a case. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So uh, you, that's like as simple as Googling for recipes for different kinds of wounds or different kinds of conditions? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, probably I think the listeners would be interested to know just a couple of little practical examples of things that you do commonly for other kinds of cases that many of us run, particularly in acute care scenarios. Okay. So simple side, moulage is about creating a visual cue.
3: So moulage could be as simple as The color of urine using water and food coloring. It can be bile by creating um, a dark green bile using Coca-Cola mixed with dark green coloring. It could be beads of sweat on your patient who's got chest pain on their forehead and that can be created using glycerin and water put into a spray bottle. Um, and these,
1: these I think, seem like simple things to you. But, yep. you know, if I was doing sweat, I'd just think, oh, why not water? Yeah. But it sounds like you want to get the right surface tension for the plastic or
4: whatever Absolutely. you're trying to
1: do. Plus it keeps it in that
3: beaded effect on your patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay. there are simple simple ways of doing it. It can be a heat pack on the back of your SP's leg for a
1: DVT or yep. on your mannequin. So, um, Yeah. Yes, and look at the surprise on your learners' faces when they actually feel that calf, and they go, "Oh my god, it's really warm!" <laughs> yeah. And a couple of slightly more complicated ones. Asked to do several complex
3: cases. Uh, these run from perimortem cesareans and clamshell thoracotomies, and because these involve invasive procedures that we can't always do on our mannequins with their skin, because it would be a costly affair to replace the skins. Um, I moulage up my own chest skins using cheap vinyl cuts in skin colour, and I cut and shape it to the the mannequin's body, and draw on the anatomical landmarks for the participants to refer to, and then on the underside of the skin, so that when they do the surgical incision, they actually get blood coming through. I just attach simple Ziploc bags of blood to the back of the skin, which gives that nice bleeding effect. So complex, it can be simply designed if you know what to do. Um, you mm. might want to build your own rib cage out of ET tubes and that have been um, covered in plaster cast, yeah. uh, which
1: is what we use for the clamshell thoracotomy. Um, yeah. And I think these are great examples. And having seen a couple of those in action, just the look on the surgeon's face when it actually bleeds uh, is priceless. And, and I as just say yeah, it really helps that engagement so that people think that they are doing it up to that point that you're talking about beyond which it's probably overspecified. Well, I think these have been really useful uh, examples, Claire. Thank you very much. And I'll put up a couple of those recipes that you were talking about in the blog post accompanying this if people want to go and look up some of those for yourself. But thank you very much. Thank you. So Jesse, what did you think of that?
2: Yeah, I I really quite enjoyed that. It's it's a very very basic user guide, which I think is really actually quite pragmatic. That a lot of the time it's great. We can get very carried away with what we'd like to do and and embrace the creativity, but the reality is we just don't have time to do that. So I really appreciate those sort of tips around creating. Just the the cues that are required to achieve the learning objectives of the scenario, reflecting back to actually some of the the most successful moulaging that um, that I've done has been around an organophosphate poisoning case, and it was just a case of making some horrendous liquid diarrhoea, frothing mouth, and um, then there's a this beautiful substance that you can buy on the on the internet called liquid arse, which is. L- Exactly what it sounds like—the odor of um, fecal matter in a gas can. So the, the, it gets the cues across perfectly, and I particularly like the um, trauma rib cage that Claire was talking about. I haven't actually um, thought of doing that with creating the um, the ribs with used ET tubes covered in plaster. So that's a great idea, great tip.
1: Yeah, I was there for that, Sim, and it was certainly effective. And I think her other point about sharing resources, and it wasn't until I started looking on the internet for some of the resources that she was talking about that I found out just how rich that resource is. So I would uh, suggest anyone who's interested to have a look at some of those. So my next guest was Kerry Schaefer, who's a very clever cardiologist that I met in Boston at the Harvard Macy program this year. And she was describing to me an educational workshop she was doing. And literally had a 3D printed model of a heart with a congenital heart defect. And so I interviewed her about how she came to be doing this and thinking more generally about how we might use technology and 3D printing for a different kind of simulation that is an educational one and particularly teaching anatomy and pathology. So here's Kerry now. So I've got with me today Carrie Schaefer, who I met in Boston recently, who's a cardiologist and who is also a medical
5: educator. So, Carrie, tell us a little bit about you. I'm a cardiologist. I studied adult cardiology and do adult congenital heart disease here at Boston Children's Hospital. And then I, uh, my clinical work is basically inpatient care as well as echocardiography and a lot of education. So I met Kerry
1: back at the Harvard Macy Program in January and I was totally thrilled to see these little 3D printed heart models that she had that illustrated normal hearts as well as those with variants of congenital heart disease. So Kerry, tell us a little bit about the background to this. Why did you want to build these models and what are you going to do with them?
5: So uh, one of the most important Important parts of understanding congenital heart disease. And I think one of the most difficult parts for not only just trainees, but really practicing physicians is understanding the anatomy. And we have a really difficult time explaining this on the wards to students in particular. Um, And it often ends up being, you know, pulling up pictures on the web and having difficulty really explaining the true physiology of the, of the anatomy to the students. And so When we set out to do an educational course, so we're doing an educational course that focuses on the anatomy and physiology and management of congenital heart disease, we really wanted to think outside the box about how we could teach people the anatomy so that they had this background in order to understand the physiology. We then uh, explored the opportunities at Boston Children's Hospital and found out that Because of the clinical enterprise, so the techniques that surgeons and cath attendings, uh, cardiologists, interventional cardiologists are using, really understand the anatomy clinically so that they can do interventions on these patients, such as complex surgeries or device placements, Boston Children's has developed this very sophisticated 3D printing. And what's nice is that this is already in place for the clinical enterprise. And so uh, we have the ability to really use the techniques they've developed for clinical use for educational purposes.
1: It sounds to me like you really found some friends that were already into doing this, which seems a lot easier than trying to develop your own skills in 3D printing.
5: I was very surprised at how advanced this had become and it's really because a lot of the surgeries that are done at Boston Children's Hospital are referrals from outside centers of really complex anatomy and uh, using the 3D-printed hearts has improved the surgeon's ability to perform the surgeries quickly and correctly.
1: So they essentially look at various scans, echoes, MRIs, and then they recreate that prior to operating so they can plan their operation.
5: They do, and one of the things they've learned, which we use also, is the fact that you have to have an extraordinarily high-resolution image in order to print from. So it turns out that, at least for our purposes, we have to have a cardiac CT to have the source data in order to get a quality enough printed model that shows the resolution of anatomy sufficiently.
1: Okay. So talk us through it because I think some of our listeners might know friends like this that they can go to if they've got an educational need. So you essentially went with some example cases and you said to these guys, can you please print us these hearts? Uh, And we need to think about how we're going to use them in our educational model. Is that right?
5: Yes, exactly. So what we wanted to do was to give our students a continuity experience where we take them through a case using the case method teaching method, and then teach from that anatomy throughout the remainder of uh, the half day. We took that patients, we selected patients with cardiac CTs for our example patient And then we took that cardiac CT to the 3D printing team and asked them to generate a 3D model. We then inspect the 3D model that they create, the digital model, and, you know, make any decisions with regards to how we want to display it. One of the things that we have to decide upon is how to show the internal anatomy of the heart in a way that still preserves sort of the external structure and orientation. So we sit with the, the 3D printing guys for a while and make various different digital models. And then we print, have printed sample models that we now use for inspection and making sure that everything makes sense. And then, and then we take those 3D, we're going to print them on a large scale to give to our students when they come to the course.
1: Obviously, there's varying literature about the kind of learners people are, but I think when it comes to this kind of stuff, all of us are visual. And probably it also adds to be able to touch and feel and move the Hearts around and see them from different perspectives as well as inside. So, this sounds like a really interesting enterprise. Well, you and I have just been chatting now and tell us a little bit about how you're going to measure whether this works and whether it is, in fact, bang for buck in terms of the resources you've put into it.
5: We're very interested to know whether or not this component, the 3D printed models, provide additional information and uh, education to our students. And so, what we've decided to do is a mixed method research project that will essentially evaluate the students' abilities to comprehend complex anatomic questions before and after the use of the 3D printed model teaching. And we're doing this in conjunction with two other types of education. One is a a simulation session where we actually have them go through a case in a, in, the, in our sim center. And the other component is this combination of case method teaching as well as some more traditional didactic lectures.
1: Interesting research project to do, and we're really going to look forward to the outcome because I think that will have a lot of transferability to many other things that we're doing where people are trying to come at educational endpoints from different strategies. And obviously in some cases they're complementary. But I think this idea of really trying to find that cut point between what we put into it and what our learners get out of it is research that is still in its infancy. So um, we wish you all the best with that. Thank
5: you so much. Yeah, we're really excited about the opportunities that we have here to explore 3D printing. Pretty amazing stuff. Hey, Jesse?
2: Yeah, amazing in its simplicity, I think, with that. Uh, the the thing that really struck me about uh, about this was I've been in a number of situations where you're trying to teach anatomy and physiology, and you're left to do it in very stale way. So, this is actually a really beautiful example of um, of functional task alignment, where you're trying to to create the perfect teaching tool for your objectives. The other thing I th- that this threw up was the uh, approaching the concept and the ideas of simulation differently, and this. Uh, and considering the potential um, for involvement of patients in, in or this, this application in patient education, have you um, had any patient involvement with, with SIM before, Vic? I
1: haven't, but the link that I've put in the notes there to the Boston Children's Hospital SIM program, which is where Kerry got a lot of her resources, they do a lot of simulation broadly for patient involvement. So they even bring patients in and run a simulation of looking after their child with their tracheostomy at home prior to discharge, as an example. And so they've got an entire simulation suite there that uh, recreates the home environment so that parents and families can simulate how they're going to care for their child. So I think there's a lot of that that goes on, Jesse, but you're right, it doesn't seem as mainstream in the simulation literature.
2: And that's why I love doing this podcast because I genuinely learn something new every time we record. So that's really cool.
1: Yes, and uh, for those interested, a shout out to Peter Weinstock and his group at Boston Children's. It's one of the most comprehensive simulation programs integrated with the hospital that I've seen. So go and have a look on their website and see some of the things that they do. And my next guest was Andy Buck. I went and did his course on procedures. This is the emergency trauma management course that he does, and this is the spin-off procedures course, which as a somewhat aging facem, I thought i better go and do to make sure my procedural skills were still up to scratch. And I know Andy had been doing some work on 3D printing, so I asked him a little bit about what's his favorite 3D printed SIM thing. And again, perhaps this is directed at that kind of simulation that is the procedural skills training, which we know many people do that might complement or be additional to their scenario-based training. So here's Andy now. So thanks, Andy, for agreeing to be interviewed. Thinking today about making stuff for procedural skills training, and I know you've been very involved in that, maybe just tell us what's your favourite homemade part-task trainer and why?
0: Hi Vic, thanks for having me on the podcast today. Look, I make a lot of homemade task trainers for the various courses I run, and so it's hard to pick a favorite, but look, probably my favorite would be the intraosseous needle insertion trainer I make from PVC and silicon. And these are a humerus and tibial model that I make just based on bones, but I've also made a version by 3D scanning and then 3D printing my own leg. You might ask why this is my favorite. Look, because to me, once you make the mold, these are really quick and easy to make, and they're actually way cheaper than the commercially available ones. They're they're well less than a quarter to less than a fifth of the price. The one I made from the 3D scan, 3D print, also, it has a much more realistic appearance and feel than the normal sort of bones a big chunk of brown foam stuck over the top of them so i think you get better functional task alignment as it looks like a real leg that you're drilling into yeah i like it for that reason and also a, a real key seller for me is that they're repairable so we literally get hundreds of uses out of them compared to the 10 or 20 goes you get out of the commercially available ones that they need to be replaced so i can patch the holes in these with some pvc and constantly reuse them
1: Yeah, and certainly that's a good one. Many of us have struggled with how to replicate the challenge that's required for IO needle insertion. So tell us a little bit more detail about how you make it, what you use, how long it takes, and what does it cost?
0: So Victor, make these bones, it involves quite a few steps, but they're all fairly straightforward. It takes a bit of trial and error to get the hang of it, but it doesn't take too long and you should be able to knock these out. So first of all, you need a bone to make a mold out of. Uh, you need to make a silicon mold of that bone, which is a bit of a process in itself. You then need to pour some PVC into that mold and cast the bone, and then you pop it out, clean it up and add some silicon pads uh, to mimic what would be overlying soft tissue. So look, you can use any real or plastic bones. Plastic's probably better, real's a bit messy to make your mold out of. You need to section them in the coronal plane so that they can sort of lie flat on a table and face upwards and not roll around when people are trying to use them. And as long as the cortex is about anywhere from sort of three to five millimeters thick, that's probably reasonable. For the 3D printed one, I actually scanned my own leg, did quite a bit of software work on the, the model, cropped it, edited it up a bit, and then printed it in a plastic called PLA. Look, PLA is too brittle and too hard to use. Uh, to actually drill through. You need to actually just use that model to make a silicone mold and then use PVC to cast it. So look, once you've made your mold, you need to spray it with some quick release spray or stuff that stops the PVC sticking to the silicone. I use some stuff called uh, J-Wax. You then mix up a two-part mix of PVC, I use one called Procast. It's a medium set, rigid polyurethane. For the nerds out there, it's a gerometer hardness about sure 65D, so it's pretty hard. Uh, it looks dark brown, like almost like Coca-Cola when you mix it together and you think, that's not gonna look like a bone, but when it sets, it actually amazingly turns this nice off-white sort of bone color. You then pour that into the mold, put the lid on the mold, and depending on the ambient temperature, it takes only about one to two hours to set. Warmer the weather, the faster it'll set. So within sometimes within an hour, you can have a bone coming out of your mold. I then make a little silicon skin rectangle to go over the IO needle insertion site on the tibia. So sort of three to five millimeters thick soft tissue pad, Uh, or I make a sort of a hemispherical silicon part to go over the upper end of the humerus and actually just use a little um, ceramic bowl, pour the silicon in that and sit the humerus in it while it sets. And to stick these two parts together, so the silicon soft tissue to the bone, or your PVC plastic, silicon's renowned for not sticking to anything. So you actually need a special glue called Elastosil E41. That's the one I found. It's one of the only adhesives that'll stick silicon to PVC. So what costs you're looking at uh, for the pinky seal, for the mold, two kilos is about 70 bucks, but that's a one-off setup cost. And once you've got your mold, you can reuse it hundreds of times. Uh, You need a bit of equipment to make a mold box and um, some clay. So that's maybe 20, 30 bucks there. So looking about a hundred bucks there. The Procast two kilos is about 77 bucks and it takes about 200 grams to make one tibia and one humerus. So they actually, for that part, only work out at about $4 each. Pinky seal for the skin. Again, you're just pouring a tiny bit in and making these tiny little pads one or two dollars and the elastic silk glue is expensive it's about 30 bucks for a 100 gram tube but you yeah, literally hardly use any of it and lasts a really long time so look overall setup anywhere from sort of 100 to 150 bucks maybe and the material cost is about five to seven dollars per bone so compared to uh, 50 to 60 bucks a bone they're much cheaper you do have to factor in what your time is worth but the good thing like i said about these bones is you can use just a couple of mils of procast to patch the holes in these bones and reuse them and you literally get hundreds of Hundreds of goes out of them. So they're much cheaper, reusable, more realistic, better functional task alignment bones than the commercially available ones.
1: So you've talked about this 3D printing, Andy, and I know of other examples than your tibia. Uh, Kieran McKenna presented his 3D printed larynx at SMAC in Dublin last year. Is this a modality that's ready for prime time for the average clinician educator?
0: Look, 3D. Printing, I would say, is definitely not ready for prime time use for the average clinician. It's a really rapidly evolving space. And in a nutshell, I think it boils down to some key hurdles or barriers that exist currently. First of all, it'll be the terminology of the language, because it's pretty unique to 3D printing. It's like learning a new language. There's some software barriers, some hardware barriers, and probably the biggest for busy clinicians is time. It takes a lot of time to learn how to do this. I think it's definitely something that people will uh, possibly get more into over the next five to 10 years, uh, but I don't think it's quite ready for the prime time yet. So look, if any of your listeners want to learn more about it, they can definitely contact me. I'd be happy to share my experience and probably via twitter is easiest if they just want to tweet me at ed exam i'd be happy to chat
1: well thanks andy sounds like it's definitely watch this space one for the aficionados at this point but perhaps accessible for more of us in the future so thanks again
2: in addition to andy's um andy's talk about talking about using printed objects for procedural training what a really interesting application of 3d printing i heard a few years ago is um from the Clinical Skills Development Service um, in Queensland, been 3D printing um, parts for part-task trainers and mannequins that have actually gone out of stock, so they're, they're no longer available, to actually extend the lifespan um, of some of their still still usable resources. So I thought that was a really cool um, exercise in, some, in a very modern application, maintaining sustainability and sim.
1: So for the final segment, I spoke to Jessica Stokes Parish, who we heard from last year as one of the conveners for the Australasian Simulation Congress. And the reason I spoke to Jess is that she's just published, I think, a really thought provoking article about our bang for buck for moulage and how much effort are we putting in and what are we actually getting out of it. And so I spoke to her about this article, so I'd encourage people to read the article. But here's what Jess had to say about it. So I've also got with me Jessica Stokes-Parrish, who we met in one of the earlier Pause and Discuss episodes of Simulcast back at last year's Australasian Simulation Congress. So Jess, briefly tell us again about yourself.
4: I work as a lecturer in nursing with the University of Newcastle's Department of Rural Health. I've got a very strong background in simulation and was previously a simulation coordinator. Um, So I'm a registered nurse, obviously. I currently work in ICU and um, in amongst all of that have a, a small child and a PhD baby and a number of other things going on.
1: The reason I've got Jess talking to me today is because she's just published an article in the February issue of Simulation in Healthcare entitled Does Appearance Matter? Current Issues and Formulation of a Research Agenda for Moulage in Simulation. Um, I'm going to put that article in the show notes, but it's a fascinating
4: read and it really had made me think. So Jess, why did you even get interested in moulage? When I was thinking about what my PhD topic would be and, and where I would go with that, I'd had a, quite a few conversations with my colleague, Jan Roche, and we were talking and she kind of suggested, moulage, maybe that's a, a topic to look at. And I, my immediate response was that I laughed and thought, who researches special effects makeup? That sounds quite funny. But the more I looked into it and the more that I understood how much it was used in simulation and and how much I was using it in my everyday practice, I thought, okay, maybe this is something to look at.
1: And that must have been a bit motivated by the thought that perhaps we're not doing it right or perhaps as your article illustrates, are we getting bang for buck? Are we getting the learner engagement that we think we are when we try and make that ideal fake vomit?
4: Yeah, well, when I first looked at the moulage and when I was doing it, I thought, really, this looks quite fake and why am I even doing it I mean surely my participants don't really care if there's some blotchy red mannequin that's having anaphylaxis that doesn't look real so I kind of thought we must be it must be a bit of overkill let's go see what the literature says about it so I realized it was such an untapped field and the more I looked into it the more I realized we were just doing moulage for the sake of doing moulage. But I couldn't really find anything in the current simulation literature that explains how important moulage was, how do we need to do it, where is it important, who does it matter to, how much should we be investing our time into this, and you know, should I be going away and doing a full-on special effects makeup course, or is a two-day session enough to get me up to speed?
1: Mm, I think the questions that I haven't really thought about before, but I think you're onto something here. Perhaps one of the challenges I would anticipate is somehow trying to measure the outcomes of moulage, less, more, different. Uh, You've used in your article things like learner engagement, you use words like authenticity, but I guess you're thinking ahead to, well, what am I going to use to measure whether this moulage is effective for our education or other purposes of simulation?
4: Yeah, precisely. So at the moment, I'm actually in the middle of a Delphi study to create a tool to rate authenticity of moulage. So again, when I looked at the literature, I couldn't see any guidelines or frames of how we should measure it. And so, so yes, I'm partway through that and hoping in the next couple of months, I'll have a tool that will be usable to actually measure So if we are going to study how moulage affects engagement in simulation, we do need to be able to measure it effectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And I guess even at this early stage, you've probably been thinking hard about it and you've probably got a few thoughts about what you want to change. What would that be just to take it down to that really practical level?
4: I think to consciously think about what we're doing and linking it back to the learning objectives. So it's not so much about let's just do a bruise for the sake of doing a bruise in this trauma scenario, it's actually thinking about what are the steps that I want this participant to take in the simulation and is it necessary for us to have those cues such as moulage to, I guess, propel them to the next logical step in the simulation. So it kind of links back to a lot of um, Diekmann's realism, etc. but with the idea that we look at Uh, What are the learning objectives? Is it necessary for diagnosis or is it just a cue? And then how much detail do we need in the creation of these cues?
1: Yeah, I think I know what you mean. We ran a scenario for our senior house officers on Wednesday and it was about managing a behaviourally disturbed drunk person patient and we used a simulated patient so it's a great scenario but we had a head injury and that was really important because that signal of having to decide is this person just drunk or do we need to manage them as a head injury was really important whereas obviously if it wasn't who would care whether they had that or not.
4: Yeah exactly and I don't think we're asking those questions enough and I think that's something that we'll see from this research is looking at thinking about it more seriously and really putting effort into the instructional design of the physical cues.
1: Well, sounds fantastic. Very interesting. I'd encourage everybody to read your paper. Obviously, you're talking about Delphi studies. You've got a few uh, research projects in
4: the pipeline. Are you looking for co-collaborators at all? Sure. Always willing to chat to people that have a mutual interest and to explore how we can work together. Um, Always open to get in touch.
1: Absolutely. So, um, as I said, feel free to make comments on the Simulcast blog if you're interested in this. And also, Jess will, of course, be yet again at the Australasian Simulation Congress this year, being the convener. And I'm looking forward to a great time in Sydney. Do you want to give us any little shout outs uh, in the planning up for the Congress? Get your submissions in by the 22nd of March. Excellent, Jess. Well, thanks again for talking to us and uh, we'll look forward to more from you on Simulcast and, of course, in the real simulation world. Thanks, Vic. So it kind of makes us think, doesn't it, Jesse?
2: Yeah, it does. It's it's nice to see the foundation's being laid for actually a, a newer research agendas in simulation as well. So the, the what works, what doesn't, why why does it work sort of agendas rather than um, trying to prove simulation itself works or doesn't work. Um, so I, I really appreciate that as a launch pad to, for thought but also considering um, potentially quite simple research projects. So that's brilliant.
1: Okay, so there it is, Jesse. Some interesting food for thought, I believe, on moulage and making stuff. 3D printing, research, practical tips for the everyday simulation provider. Uh, great episode of Resources, I think, and thanks very much.
2: Yeah, thanks, heaps.